Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Nick Morgan, author of Can You Hear Me? Nick, you did a great job in this book. We uh, are thankful to have you today. So before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background, where you went to school, what you've done professionally, and what you're doing professionally? Sure. And thanks, uh, Mark, for having me on the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. I uh, started out life as an academic, uh, got a PhD at the University of Virginia, and was teaching Shakespeare in public speaking, thinking that that's where I'd uh, end my working days. And I got a call from the uh, State Secretary of Education in Virginia saying, the uh, governor's speechwriters had a nervous breakdown. Uh, can you replace them on short notice? And I said yes, because uh, frankly, I was a little bored in the academic world. And then I had two years as a governor's speechwriter. I wrote five speeches a day uh, for s- seven days a week for two years. Uh, it was a fabulous uh, foxhole experience. And I was very glad when it was done. <laughs> and uh, uh, then I went on to uh, uh, to coach people and, and write more speeches. I worked for a couple of big consulting companies in the 90s and then started my own company, Public Words, in 97. And I've been doing that ever since. I wish I had your voice. I love your deep voice. It's a, it's a natural radio voice. Thank you. Yeah, very well. So why did you write this book? Well, I was uh, uh, giving a lot of speeches uh, pre-pandemic, um, and I would always get asked the question after a speech about communications and body language and that kind of thing. Uh, the the first question would always be, uh, uh, Nick, this this body language stuff is really interesting. Thanks for that. But, and I always knew there was a but coming, <laughs> uh, th- my team is based in India and California and France, all over the world. I never see them face to face. So how does that affect body language? And my first reaction is, well, duh, there, there is no body language in the virtual world. Um, and then I thought, that's not a good enough answer for somebody who's supposed to be an expert in communication. So I jumped in to do the research. Uh, uh, for a, took me a couple of years and then published the book in 2018. And if only I had said, if only I had said we live in a virtual world, I'd be a genius today because uh, of the pandemic. But in fact, I said, we're, we're in a half face-to-face, half virtual world. I did not see the pandemic coming. Um, but uh, uh, one fun fact for you, in 2018, Fortune 1,000 companies used video conferencing at the rate of 5%. 95% of employees never used video conferencing and or rarely. Um, and then in March 2020, of course, it went to virtually 100% in a week. So uh, we had a steep learning curve. We had John Chambers on here early from Cisco Systems, and the guy who founded Zoom had tried to convince him, and he had also built WebEx, that his idea for Zoom was going to be better than WebEx. And they said, we're not interested. He said, can I just go on my way? And they said, sure, good luck, and take it with you. And now he's worth $16 billion or $17 billion. Not 
it was a good out package. Yeah, right. And and Zoom is a is a is a verb, is a household word. So. Yeah, he's absolutely. done well. Yeah, extremely done well. You write about the emptiness of the virtual communication. Why did you write that, and what's your thoughts about this? Yeah, that was a surprising result of the research. I'm an audiophile. I, I'm always adapting the latest technology when it comes down the, the pike. I was thrilled to get the first iPhone, and, and I, I love iPads. I'm a big Apple user. Uh, so I thought when I started doing the research that I'd find that it was all good news, that the that the uh, virtual communications were bringing us together uh, and making the world a closer and smaller and, and a more democratic place. And instead, what I found was that um, there are five big problems um, in the virtual world, but they all stem from the lack of feedback. And what do I mean by that? The, when we're meeting face to face, we automatically, that is unconsciously, our brains uh, seek information through the five senses, sight, smell, sound, touch, taste. Um, and we get a constant stream of information that way. In the virtual world, we don't get that information. And so the brain goes into a slight panic mode saying, what's going on here? What are those people up to? Who are they? What, are they, what is their intent toward me? And not having that information, it feels empty and it tends to make up negative information as a result in order to fill the space. Because it's, if you think about it, for survival purposes, it's better to assume the worst than to say, yeah, everything's cool here, nothing to worry about. Uh, and so the, uh, the unconscious mind says, I'm not getting enough data about the people that I'm talking to or trying to interact with. And so I'm going to assume that they're unhappy, they're disinterested, they're not engaged. And nobody ever interpreted, nobody ever interpreted the silence on a, uh, either on a video call or an audio call after you say something brilliant. There's always a brief silence while people go for their mute buttons. Nobody ever in interpreted that as, wow, they're stunned into silence because they think what I said was so magnificent. No, what you think is, oh, they're disengaged. They don't like it, that kind of thing. There's always a negative assumption. That's the emptiness that I'm talking about. Yeah, and I think people get a sense of that, and especially over the time here that we've been on Zoom so much every single day. And then people are starting to do other things and look at the CNN, ESPN site mm. while you're talking to them. But what's the mental damage the constant virtual communication is doing to people? And how can uh, virtual communication be used in a positive, less damaging way? Because you write about that. Yeah, it's a little scary. Uh, there, there are two cohorts or two populations that have been studied. Uh, one is teenagers uh, and their use of mobile phones. And then the other is seniors, retired people, also using virtual means to connect theoretically with the world, taking online courses, looking at pictures of their grandkids, having Zoom calls with their grandkids, that kind of thing. And for both those groups, there's a straight line relationship between um, depression and anxiety and, and sadness and um, your time spent on the mobile phone. And that's a bit alarming. So uh, that suggests that whatever it is we hope to get from in terms of connection from mobile phones and from virtual uh, communications in general, we're not getting. Um, how to make it better is um, to focus on fewer calls of higher quality. That's the first thing. Um, 
and try to go deep on the calls instead of just keeping it to chit chat. You know, humans are pretty good at chit chat. Face to face, we're used to talking about the weather or sports or that kind of thing. But at the same time, we're getting unconscious messages from those senses I mentioned earlier about connection to that other person, their smiles, their nods, maybe a touch on the arm. We're getting reinforcement. In the virtual world, we don't get that. And so we need to substitute something in for that. And that is to work harder at the, con the connection that isn't automatically happening as it would face-to-face. -face. Now, we had a neuroscientist from Wharton on, a couple, I guess, a few months ago, and he was saying that people are losing 22% of their brain power uh, by the fact that they're not able to in, uh, interact in a personal way. You know, all the studies have uh, shown that, yeah, this is fine if you can't actually be in person, but nothing takes the place of being in person, which you write about it also in the book. There's a relatively new phobia, uh, nomophobia, the fear of trying to live without your cell phone. And while personal engagement goes up, so does our sense of loneliness. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because, man, you see that everywhere. I mean, even when you go to a park, you'll see 200 people there, none of them talking to each other. Yeah, there's a wonderful artist who's taking pictures of people with their mobile phones and then removing uh, airbrushing out or, or removing uh, with the pixel uh, work out the uh, mobile phone. And so you see somebody who's like this, staring fixedly at nothing. And it's, it gives you a really eerie sense of how absorbed we are in these mobile phones uh, and how much time we spend uh, staring at them. Um, so the, the, the problem is, but in a way it's a strength, but it's also a problem. And that is we're sort of outsourcing our brains to the mobile phone. So um, as I was saying with a group of friends the other day, we were talking about how in the old days, pre-mobile phone, you could have a good 20 minute argument about some fact, like you could argue about who won the, the Nobel Prize in such and such a year, or who was what was that uh, Oscar winning film? And now you can't argue about that anymore. Somebody just goes to the phone and looks it up. Uh, and so <laughs> there's no need for that kind of fun, yet essentially just affirming and connecting conversation where you're not really debating anything deeply serious. You're just uh, you're just uh, chattering away and, and connecting with the other person. Um, so, uh, so our brains are in a sense being externalized. They're being put in, into our pocket or into our uh, purse these, with the mobile phones. Um, and the, the other issue, of course, that everybody's noticed is that you get these little hits, like little dopamine hits from social media attention. You might get a like on Facebook or, or somebody might retweet your tweet or something like that. And that gives you a tiny little zing of pleasure. It's like somebody noticed that I exist. Um, the problem is it's not enough to keep you going. It's like eating Pringles potato chips. It, one leads to another, right? You, you don't ever get satisfied. So you keep going for it. And so it is a form, some kind of addiction. I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not pronouncing it. Uh, on it in that sense, but it, it feels like a form of mental addiction. Um, and so enslaved to our phones um, and uh, uh, externalizing our brains, it doesn't sound like a good prescription for future happiness. And, and that's what you're talking about when you talk about reshaping our brains? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the effect on, on how we think uh, is, is a little alarming. Uh, there's a lot of debate about our attention spans getting shorter and shorter. Um, there was a meme going around that attention spans are eight seconds. 
uh, the, which is roughly that of a goldfish, or sometimes they say a goldfinch if there's a misprint. Uh, whether it's a bird or a fish, it's very short. <laughs> and it turns out that was a study done by Microsoft that was about how long people typically spend looking at a web page. And so it's a completely different thing. It isn't really attention span at all. So don't worry about that one. Our attention spans have not shrunk to eight seconds. But there is some evidence that the basic idea of attention spans, um, and, and they've been studied mostly in university settings. So what we're really talking about is how long students can pay attention to professors lecturing. And that seems to be about 22 minutes before they need a break, something like that. On the line, it's at least half that, maybe 10 minutes, maybe a little less. But these are not hard and fast numbers. And I, you, you should be a little suspicious of the research because it's very preliminary. And attention span can meet a lot of things. Um, we... Uh, my attention span for uh, listening to an economist lecture might be very short, uh, but I might go binge watch Game of Thrones and spend hours on Netflix. And so attention spans vary depending on how interesting we find the uh, material itself. I think I'll visit you the next time you're doing uh, Game of Thrones because I've watched that three times already. <laughs> so, yeah, I love binge watching Game of Thrones. I thought this was interesting. Why does texting make romantic relationships less romantic? <laughs> well, let's step back a minute and just talk about texting for a second and what it represents. The uh, Texting is our best attempt to communicate with each other in kind of a telegraph ease in, in a shorthand version. And, and so as a result, it doesn't include the, uh, the all-important thing that we humans crave to know about each other, which is your intent toward me, my intent toward you. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the dangers for romantic relationships are really pretty obvious when you think about it that way, that uh, if I can't be sure of your intent, the possibilities for misunderstanding are are uh, huge. And somebody typing something in a hurry might neglect to put in uh, a crucial bit of information. If you say, uh, you know, I'm going to be late, what does that mean? Um, does that mean I'm going to be late because I don't love you anymore? Or does it mean I'm going to be late because I'm held up in traffic? And, and those kind of distinctions are all important in romantic relationships, and yet they're often lost uh, in the telegraph ease that is a text communication. I'm the emoji king now, Mike. Uh, I've really gone to the point where I'm overboard. My girlfriend writes to me. I just send emojis all the time. I said, God, that's really efficient way, but probably not the best way to tell someone you care. Uh, what is missing an email that doesn't translate well as compared to speaking to someone, especially since you're constantly get to edit and re-edit what you write? You know, you spend a lot of time thinking that through and it still can end up coming out sideways. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and as we all know, if you get it wrong, the first email and then you start a a feud with somebody, then it takes a lot more emails to un untangle it if you ever can. Yeah, the 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 problem with email again is that um, unless you're Shakespeare and you're used to writing uh, beautiful emotive poetry and prose, um, it's hard to get things clear in email. And the bigger problem is information overload. We um, get far too many emails, text-based messages, Slack. If you use Slack in your workplace, we're we're inundated with. Uh, with information in the virtual world. And most of it is still text-based, even though we do spend a lot of time now on Zoom. But virtually the, the vast majority of information we get is on, in text. 
and so uh, we're in the position of having to skim and to triage. And so you can see the danger immediately. And that is that if I'm skimming it, I don't necessarily pick up every nuance. I miss a nuance. I, I miss that you apologize for asking me to do that horrific amount of work uh, within the hour. Thank you very much, Mark. And so I sit to work <laughs> furious uh, and, and you know teeth clenched and I do the work. And then you say, oh, you didn't have to worry about that. Um, tomorrow would have been fine and then i'm even angrier you know and uh, <laughs> that's the that's problem happened. <laughs> that's the problem with text-based uh, communications and you can make it better uh, by being very clear uh, in your header if if it's an email uh, message let's say and i always say put a full sentence in there don't do something like quick question because we all know you get an email that says quick question it's never quick Right, that means it's going to be a difficult, long, hard question. But empty form uh, headings like that tend to get pushed to the bottom of the email list because you think, "Oh God, I can't do another quick question." Um, so put a complete sentence in it, saying what the uh, the, the reader needs to get out of this, um, and then uh, make sure you have a clear action step at the end. So you, I know what I'm supposed to do, if anything, with regard to this email. And then I'm I'm with you, uh, Mark. I'm a big fan of emojis uh, because. Um, while there was a funny little bit of research that found that if you're under 40, um, you like and use emojis. And if you're over 40, you think they're childish and that only young people use them. So um, maybe that's an argument for, in your mind, for using them or not. But um, the, it's clearly a generational thing. Obviously, the generation that's grown up using the technology and comfortable with it is, is fine using emojis. But I say they're like a crude form of body language. So... Um, the, one of the th questions I love to ask audiences is how many of you have sent the following email? Nice job, great job, good job. And mm -hmm. it's always 100%. 100% of audiences that I talk to have sent that email. And I say, don't worry, it's not a trick question. It's a good email to send. You're being a good colleague. And you do want to tell people they have done a nice job. But would it surprise you to learn that 60% of the time that email is taken as sarcastic? And when I was first talking about the book in 2018, wow. yeah, to live audiences, I get an audible gasp from the audience. In the uh, in the virtual world, I don't get the audible gasp anymore, <laughs> but people are still surprised. And the, and your your reaction is like, how? How could anybody misunderstand that simple two word email? <laughs> and then I say, well, imagine that you're saying it. Um, uh, Good job, Mark. You know, with sincerity and enthusiasm. Or imagine I'm saying, good job, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You did it again. Good job. I'm saying it sarcastically. Completely different read. Well, in the internet, when you don't get clear emotional messages like that, your tendency is to assume the worst. And so 60% of the time, people read it as sarcastic. What are the five big problems seldom encountered in person and how has that overcome? Yeah, so the, the, the five big problems are uh, the first one I mentioned, the lack of feedback. You're not getting the feedback that we normally get to determine what the intent of the other person is. And uh, that's the biggest problem. And the other ones flow from that. So the second one is lack of empathy. And this one was a real surprise to me because I thought, well, all right, if we're not getting information about other people, then uh, that's going to make us more curious or to know what they're thinking. And so our empathy should go up. But instead, because of that negative assumption that I mentioned, our empathy actually goes down. We tend to assume the worst. We tend to write the person off or assume they're angry or disinterested or negative. Uh, the third big problem 
Um, slightly different focus here is that uh, you don't have any control ultimately about what goes on in the uh, on the internet or that's said about you or that's out there forever. The machines never forget. Humans can forgive and forget. That's a, a character, a, a nice characteristic of our species, but computers never do. And for an example, for a fairly um, non terrifying example, I'll give you uh, Professor Robert Kelly. Um, if you were watching um, the BBC a couple of years ago, you saw Professor Robert Kelly. He's an expert on South Korean politics, and he was uh, asked to be on the BBC because the president of South Korea was uh, facing criminal charges for bribery or something like that. And this was his big moment. So he put on his tie and his jacket, and he had a, a really good looking map on the wall behind him that was a map of the world and made him look sophisticated. He said he bought that and put it up just for the interview. Um, and as he's starting to launch into his, uh, his topic and, and answering the questions from the BBC reporter, uh, his kid breaks into the room and comes running over, daddy, daddy. Well, this was early pre-pandemic. We're all used to Zoom bombing now and interruptions and things like that. But uh, he was completely thrown off by it. And we all know what he should have done was pick up this charming little girl and put her on his knee and introduce her to the world. And then he would have been a, an internet hero. Instead, what he did was very human. He sort of tried to push her away. <laughs> and yeah. as a result, it's a very comic uh, situation. A moment later, the other a kid comes in who's even younger, and then his wife is coming in, and she's sort of crouching down to try to stay off camera, and she pulls the kids away. And so everybody's having a good laugh at poor Professor Robert Kelly's expense. Now, most of the world thought this was cute or funny or charming. Everybody, that is, except for Professor Robert Kelly. And he reported in interviews afterwards that he was embarrassed, humiliated, mortified. He wanted to be an expert, and he felt he looked like a fool. Now, we can forgive them, especially now post-pandemic or, or after a year and a half in the pandemic, we've got such a, a clear sense of how this could happen to anybody. But uh, that's, the, that's the problem in the, uh, in the virtual world. You have a lack of control ultimately about what uh, goes out onto the internet and stays there forever. To this day, if you Google Professor Robert Kelly, that's what comes up. And then the, the, uh, the last two problems, the fourth and fifth, are poor decision-making and a lack of commitment. And the poor decision-making comes from that lack of feedback. Again, we don't know how much to care because we're not getting any information about the intent of the other people. So if they say, this is really important to me, we don't know whether it's really important or they're just saying that. And so as a result, we don't make as good decisions as we do face-to-face -face when we can get a more accurate read on the other people in the room. So I'm talking about sort of everyday business decisions where a group of people get together and decide whether to do a project or not, right? And the leader might, might uh, gauge the enthusiasm of the people in the room and decide, yeah, we can do this. Um, that kind of thing is harder to do in a virtual meeting. It's harder to get a good read on the other people. And as a result, our commitment to everybody else in that room and that's the last big problem, is weaker. Our, the nature of trust online is more fragile and our commitment to other people is weaker. Everybody's just a URL away from oblivion. If you're not interested, you just click and go somewhere else. Yeah, and we see, and we see that happening all the time. You, you write the video calls are hard work. Why do you say that? And are they more effective than telephone calls? And what's the value of seeing the other person? 
Well, so we have this hierarchy in the virtual world. At the base, as we talked about earlier, there's text-based communications of various kinds, email, texting, Slack, office productivity tools, right? That's still the biggest um, step or stone in the pyramid. Next up is audio calls. And that's a little better than text-based communications because at least if you think you've misunderstood the other person, you can confirm, you can ask, you can talk in real time. And then at the top of the, of the communications hierarchy is video conferencing. So that's the best because we do get to see each other. But it's hard work in a couple of surprising ways. And one of them is there's a slight lag between the sound and the, and the video. That's just baked into the technology. And it's such a slight, just a couple of milliseconds. But it's enough for our unconscious minds to read it as a hesitation on, on my part or your part. And so while people are listening to this broadcast, they're thinking, uh, uh, Nick, he's not as much as an expert as, as maybe his resume says, because he's hesitating. And you're not thinking that consciously, but unconsciously that's baked into the technology and you can't help uh, getting that impression. So I'd be more impressive if you and I were talking in person to a live audience, but on video that, that slight lag uh, comes in. And there's a, there's a second thing that makes it stressful, and this is really the worst thing about video conferencing, and that is that um, I've been talking about the five senses. There's a sixth sense, which is proprioception. For some reason, they don't teach this in school, but it's a really important one. And that's where our brains keep track of where we are in space and where everybody around us is in space. So imagine a cocktail party Back when we used to have those pre-pandemic, um, there are a bunch of people milling around, they're drinking. What, what's happening is your mind is keeping track of where everybody is so that you won't bump into them or so that you can connect with them if you want to later. Um, and, and as a result, um, your brain is going full tilt all the time. That's why we find often cocktail parties tiring because your brain has had to work very hard. All right, in the virtual world on a video conference, something very strange happens to your proprioception. For instance, you and I are looking at each other now, Mark. You're about an arm's length away from me. If I hold up my hand, I just about touch the computer screen there. So my brain is thinking that image of Mark is about two and a half, three feet away. But I know my brain knows that your head is not big enough to be only three feet away from me. There's something wrong here. And I, so I can't figure out where you are. My unconscious mind can't position you in space. And so I get mildly stressed by that. And so no matter what you do, by the end of the day, if you've done your five or six or seven Zoom calls, um, and I talk to executives all the time who say, yeah, I get on Zoom at eight o'clock in the morning and I go to eight o'clock at night. Then, um, then your uh, issue is that you're feeling a low level of stress uh, from that exchange. Um, it's not high enough that like your heart races or anything like that, but you're just fatigued at the end of the time. Um, and so uh, uh, for those reasons and, and a few others, Zoom uh, video conferencing is, is stressful. We have a question from the audience. We yeah. find that we have to think about connection in virtual space differently and use tools like GroupMind to build consensus and make better decisions. If we think of the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, we get better decisions than the meeting by itself. Uh, can you uh, comment on this? And if it's, a, can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's something I've uh, 
been noticing for the last year and a half as I've worked with executives, coaching them on on how to communicate via via video conferencing. Um, and th this kind of comment comes up all the time. Basically, I have to do the executive says I have to do a lot more work than I did before to make sure that everybody's aligned to ferret out what the issues are. People are less feel less comfortable um, telling me what what might go wrong with a suggestion or an idea that I have um, online than they would in person. And in person, I could pick up on their um, nonverbal uh, uh, dislike of the idea or discomfort with the idea. Um, in, in, on video, I have, to, I have to work harder to get it out. Um, and the, there's good and bad to that if you use it properly. In other words, um, if I make sure that I go around the room, let's say we have a half dozen people on a, on a Zoom call, we're having a business meeting. Um, if I go around the room and make sure that I poll everybody and give everybody a chance to talk, then something can happen there that wouldn't necessarily happen in person, which is I can get a true sense of the meeting. But I have to do that work as the convener or the MC of the, of the, of the event. What happens is people check out um, and they're happy just to sit there and, and ride, be a free rider on the Zoom call, <laughs> not do the work. Um, and they'll get, if I, Unless I don't let them, they can get away with that. But the result is then I won't know what their input is. And that's the, that's the, uh, that's the challenge. And that's what you have to do to overcome it. Well, that's why we encourage our audience to ask these questions. Exactly. So we are, make sure that they're engaged not free riding with us, right? That's right. Um, make them work for it, Mark. That's right. Ask your uh, questions. When, <laughs> there's the next question is, does the lack of eye contact impact our communication, especially when the camera is above the screen? Um, yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. The long answer, the longer answer is that uh, th th there are several ways in which it's a problem. Um, the, the most uh, important one in some ways is not the one you're probably thinking of, because everybody's been told you should make eye contact to to connect with people and to be sincere and that kind of thing. And on Zoom it, or on a video conferencing, that means the sort of incredibly tedious, uh, you're in the incredibly tedious position of having to stare at a, a little green dot or a little red dot for hours, right? It's very hard. Um, but the, uh, the, the, what, you, uh, what you wanna do instead, and the reason that eye contact really is important is that um, we use it to conduct conversations. So uh, pe people don't actually stare at each other 100% of the time, right? If you're sitting across from Sunday in a business meeting, what you do, the real pattern, this has been studied extensively by communications people, so we know how it works. The real pattern is I catch your eye contact to make sure first I've got your attention. And then I'll start talking. And as I'm talking, my eyes will drift away because I don't want to stare at you fixed the whole time. It'll make you uncomfortable. Um, and so I might look at you for five or six seconds, something like that is typical, somewhere between that and 15 seconds, depending. Um, and uh, then I look away and uh, my eyes don't come back to your eyes until I'm getting ready to wrap up. And what we humans actually do is we use our eyes then as a signal to indicate I'm almost done here. So it's time for you to get ready to talk. And that's how we hand a conversational ball back and forth. Now, what happens on, on video conferencing is because it's harder to see that, we're interrupting each other all the time. And everybody's had that experience of uh, you don't mean to, but you, you think there's a silence or a moment to jump in. And, and so you start talking and the other person starts talking and there's all this crosstalk. Um, and it's, either there's crosstalk or if you've got a lot of polite people or disengaged people, 
you know, there's no talk at all. Um, all of that's much easier to do in person than it is on video conferencing. What I recommend to people uh, for ongoing meetings where you're working with a team day in, day out, uh, a business team, let's say, um, is to establish an MC, appoint somebody an MC so that you can keep track of who's participating and who isn't and, and to warn people and to tell them how it's going and to say, all right, now let's take a 10 minute break here. If you put somebody in charge of that and, and the, 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 the role could vary, it doesn't have to be the same person every week, uh, but if you put somebody in charge of that, it, it sort of makes it easier for everybody um, to have that, those conversations and to feel engaged. Uh, you write uh, trust is different in the virtual world. Please explain how along with how to create that trust. How do you create trust? Uh, you create trust uh, by uh, going deep and showing uh, being vulnerable and authentic. And that's not easy to do um, uh, virtually online. Um, I always say the way to think about it is uh, the mythical Uncle Bob. Uh, and your Uncle Bob is the one and everybody's had this experience um, that you meet on Thanksgiving. Apologies to people who are coming in from uh, the rest of the world. Thanksgiving is a bizarre American habit where we get together once a year on a Thursday to eat way too much food, drink too much, and argue with each other. That is our immediate. Watch a lot of football. And watch a lot of football, right? Um, and and uh, everybody's got an Uncle Bob who drinks too much and has, says something that's sexist or, or worse and, and um, embarrasses everybody. But the following Monday after the weekend is over, everybody breathes a sigh of relief and goes back to work. He's still your Uncle Bob. And by the time the next year rolls around, you've forgiven him, you've forgotten perhaps, and, and you're ready again for another one. Online, you don't do that. You just, um, you just quit. You go to another URL because your, your involvement is, is less. Uh, your attachment or your, the depth of your trust is less. When we establish trust in person, it's that kind of feeling that, okay, I've seen this person in good and bad. I know how bad the bad is, and yet I still like him, or he's still my uncle, or I still respect him, or whatever the relationship happens to be. Online, you're going like, that's crazy, and you just you just uh, swipe and, and go to the next uh, relationship. If you think about it in virtual terms or in retail terms, it's easy to understand. Let's say I go on a site to buy a new shirt, something like that. And in the middle of the selection, the, the website freezes or it's taking too long. Or if I put my credit card in, something feels funny about it. What do I do? Do I go back another day and say, well, it was just having an off day. I'm going to go try again. No, I go to Amazon and, and buy it there instead. A question from the audience. How effective are breakout rooms online compared to the natural flow of a single speaker to a small group discussions in a meeting? I'm a big fan of breakout rooms because they get people involved. And the, the only way to, to even begin to approximate the kinds of involvement that you can have in a face-to-face -face meeting online or virtually is to make everybody do some work. Um, and, and to get people asking questions and commenting. And, and, and let's not paint this uh, too bleak a picture because the good news is that uh, imagine yourself pre-pandemic in a face-to-face -face, uh, setting and there's a speaker and an audience of 500 people. You know, they, and he says, or she says, let's take some questions. The only people who are going to raise their hands are the raving extroverts, right, in a group of 500. So there are a lot of introverts there who are going to get passed over, or maybe they want to ask a question, but they don't quite uh, feel comfortable doing it. Um, in, 
in the in the virtual world, you know, there's chat rooms and, and as people are doing here, they can ask their questions that way. It's much less threatening. So there are good things. There's a kind of democratization that happens online. But um, unless you get everybody working um, and participating, then their involvement is just not going to be as much. And so that's the real key is to make uh, make it interactive and use that democratization to make sure everybody is involved. When people are on screen, they look one dimensional unless they are professional actors. So how do we project empathy and other emotions that connect with us, uh, connect us with others virtually? And you have four steps in the book on how to do this. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, actually, I just correct the, the question a little bit. It's not one dimension, it's two dimensions, <laughs> but uh, it's not three, and that's the point, right? And many of us now, I'm sure, as I had just recently, have had the experience of meeting somebody um, that I had hitherto only met on video conferencing um, in person. And you immediately have this strong reaction. You think, oh, that person looks sort of more alive and fuller and realer somehow than they do on the screen. And that's because two dimensions have suddenly become three, right? So what happens on, on a two-dimensional screen is that, for example, take the human face. You've got lots of bones in the face, lots of muscles, lots of ways of making expressions. If I put that three-dimensional face into two dimensions, it flattens it out a little bit. And so even though I think I'm seeing the real mark, I'm actually not seeing your facial expressions as richly as I would if it was in person. And so you have to exaggerate a little bit. You have to work a little harder in order to make the same impression. You know, Marshall McLuhan said it years ago uh, when he was talking about uh, uh, television and how it, it's uh, an emotion sink or trap what it does is it soaks up all the emotion you can give it because it dials down the emotion. So less of it comes through. And so we need to work a little harder. We need to turn up the volume. We need to turn up the emotional expression. We need to raise our eyebrows. We need to nod. We need to smile. We need to do all the things that we would normally automatically do in person, but we need to do them a little more and a little harder than, um, than we do on um than we do online um, just automatically because we're trying to converse in the same way that we would in person. Uh, and so then the other thing we can do is, and I say, this is great if you have teenagers in the house, cause they'll think you're crazy. And that's always uh, worthwhile um, it, to alarm your teens a little bit so that the, you know, the, the tension flows the other way as well. But, uh, uh, and that is to add emotion laden words uh, to your conversation because how, how much you care about something is getting kind of dialed back. Then it's good to use words like I'm excited to be on this program. And it's great to see you, Mark. I need to, I need to amp it up a little bit in order for you to get the same level of energy and enthusiasm that you would if we were face to face. You write about the need for an online mission statement and how that can change your life. Please explain and tell us about someone who has done it well. Yeah, um, I love this. It, this was something that uh, uh, I hadn't been thinking about. And as I was doing the, I never, it never occurred to me before. And I was doing the research for the book and I ran across a wonderful gentleman who's a filmmaker named Chris Palmer, who's uh, uh, was at the, uh, American University for many years. And he he's done, if you've ever seen one of those uh, nature films or IMAX nature films, um, uh, Chris has probably done one that you've seen. He's was very prolific. And he did this online mission statement, which he said, this is what I'm about. I'm, I value the environment and I value bringing people together. And there's a lot of uh, good things like that in the mission statement. And, and it, 
it uh, it really made me stop in my tracks and think, yes, one of the issues in the online world is it's not as clear to us what your intent is. Our lack of the trust is weaker and more fragile. So if I create a mission statement and put it all out there for you to read so you know where I'm coming from, then I'm going to start that the potential relationship with on a stronger footing. So there, there's a chance to, to put back in some of that trust that's missing. Plus, it's just a great thing to do to know what your mission is. Um, what's the best way to use social media from a business standpoint, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, going with the big four? What's the best way to use those uh, so you can drive business, but you know, of course, come through as authentic and valuable? Yeah, uh, I have a, a, a good friend who's in the PR business who uh, uh, loved to say, this was a few years back, she said, you could always get an argument going on her Twitter feed by saying, uh, who wins, ninjas or pirates, <laughs> if they battle each other? <laughs> uh, and in that, in that fun little example, um, is is a is a good great business truth or a great social media business truth, which is if you can get a conversation going, then uh, you can create buzz and interest and excitement. Um, if you just push information at people, they're information overloaded. Yeah, sure, if the information is incredibly useful by chance to them or fascinating, then you'll get some uptake. But what people really are looking for is human connection. Uh, and human connection online, as we know, is a little weaker, is a little less fulfilling than it is in person. So you need to do more of it. You need to sort of up the ante on it. And so start right away with who wins? Pirates or ninjas, it, it, whatever the version of that is in your field or your uh, business uh, area, uh, you've got to get a conversation going. You quote Susan Fisk as saying, the best time to relate to people is when you make a mistake. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. The, <laughs> um, the, the, this is the time we least want to uh, uh, connect with people, of course, if we're embarrassed by the mistake. But um, it's the time when we appear human. And so the worst thing you can do is stonewall or deny or get defensive. But if instead you can own it, um, then that's a chance for people to trust you because they see how you act when you are under some kind of stress. And that's really where we learn to trust people. How do you control your own narrative online? Because it seems that it kind of gets away from people. Uh, and you see this every day. They think they're controlling their narrative, but uh, then people hijack it and it, and it takes a life of its own. How do you do that? Well, a certain amount of luck is involved. Um, there, are, there are ways in which your, your, uh, your narrative is going to get hijacked, uh, kind of no matter what. Um, but um, and we can think of a few examples. Um, I'm, I'm not remembering exactly, but there was a woman who was uh, flying to South Africa, and she made an offhand comment that she didn't mean to be racist, but it appeared to be racist. She was in the air for about 12 hours. By the time she landed, there was a full-blown tweet storm going on about what a horrible person she was. Uh, and she wrote a book about it afterwards. So somebody can Google it and tell us who that is. Perhaps one of the listeners can do some work and, and help <laughs> us out. Um, but that's a that's a great example of how it unintentioned um, uh, tweet apparently got out of control. Um, the, the best way you can control it is by getting very clear on what your narrative is, what your story is, having it to be a compelling, strong story, and never vary from it. And understand that uh, haters going to hate. Uh, the, uh, that's going to happen. 
But you've yeah, got to you, stick to your story. Yeah, you can't convince them otherwise. Just like we've seen this debate uh, with the vaccine, you can show them all the science you want and they still say, I still don't believe it. Uh, how do you create buzz so people call you? You know, you mentioned just don't throw facts at them, but what, what can you do that people will call you, especially now with everybody having a Twitter account or Instagram or they're throwing things on LinkedIn? You know, I, I actually find that in the beginning when I started the show, I was on 50 LinkedIn groups and the total number of people was 3.2 million. And I thought, man, I'm going to, when I have John Chambers or Tim Draper on this, I, I won't have enough room. In fact, I had to go to my daughter who knew the chief marketing officer at Zoom to expand my number to 500 and thinking that's still not going to be enough. And we got like next to nothing from all of those groups. So I'm wondering, how do you create that buzz that people are doing it? And by the way, everybody can see that uh, that article is shared on here. Uh, so we appreciate Stefan's sharing that article. Yes, so thank you. tell us about the buzz. Yeah, so uh, buzz, again, comes from starting a great conversation. It, it's often helpful if there's uh, uh, a, uh, a controversy involved, uh, but I would urge people not to go dark, you know, go to the, uh, the sort of hate-filled uh, uh, way of getting a conversation going that, that uh, so much of the online material does. I would say instead, try to tell one of the great stories. So uh, we humans have been telling a few basic stories to each other for tens of thousands of years. And one of them is the quest. And a quest is really irresistible for people. Um, it, uh, on a quest, a hero goes out um, to achieve something noble or to reach some goal that's very uh, noble or cool or exciting or worthwhile. Um, the the uh, when you think about a movie example, it's this is the Star Wars uh, format, right? Or the Star Wars story. Luke Skywalker goes out in order to uh, to find his way in the Force and to help the rebellion, and so he's got a couple of cool goals actually. And that story, it, funnily enough, um, the the more difficult the journey, the more impossible it seems, the better we like it. Because we identify with the hero and we think, yeah, if I were there, I could do that. Maybe maybe I could mm -hmm. achieve uh, and reach the same cool goal. Um, and so if you can enlist people in a story like that, then th they're going to be far more inclined to follow you, I think, than if you go uh, just to the um, negative side and just trash people, which I think is filling far too much of our social media these days. Oh, you're taking all the fun away from social media by doing that. <laughs> Not if it's a good story. No, you'll sign yeah. up. Game of Thrones, Mark. Game of Thrones. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm coming up to Boston. Uh, which industries and positions benefit the most by the virtual world? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example from two companies that I worked with. Uh, I can't say their names, but uh, because I've signed NDAs and all that. But um, the one of them was a pharmaceutical uh, and the other was a software company. And the software company had been founded uh, on, on uh, work from anywhere uh, from the start. And uh, the, uh, the, that company has had its best year ever during the 2020 when everybody was thinking, oh, no, this is a business is going to go in the, in the tank, right? Um, and the stock market crashed for a while before it came back and whatnot. Um, and that was because they had as part of their story 
that the 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 uh, where you could work from didn't matter because they were connected, um, and they had a strong enough sense of connection, a strong enough culture that they could tie each other together, even if it was just virtual. They also had offices and, and they closed those offices down and are now starting to reopen them and whatnot. But, but uh, there, there's a real, uh, there was a real esprit de corps that transcended just physical locations and face-to-face -face meetings. The pharmaceutical, on the other hand, was not a surprise that the pharmaceutical business is based on sales reps going to meet with doctors face-to-face -face and talking them into the benefits of their particular pharmaceuticals. Um, and so when you take that away, it's very hard for that industry to come back from. And they had to start making do with virtual meetings when there wasn't a culture of it and they weren't used to it and the doctors weren't used to it and the, and the sales reps weren't used to it. So they really struggled. Um, and it was a tough, tough year um, for many pharmaceuticals. Um, and so the the uh, the difference there is just in in being ready uh, and having a uh, a strong culture that transcends the the uh, face to face and you're ready for the next pandemic you know there's going to be another one oh, for this sure was, this was just the first so it, it, i'm sure everybody's had the wake up call they, you don't need me to tell you that you know you need to be digital first but uh, if you're not if you're not doing uh, if you don't have a good digital plan for running your business, then uh, then uh, there's probably not much I can do to help you. Yeah, your second plan is going to be have enough toilet paper to wait it all out, right? <laughs> Load up on that. <laughs> you write about the use of social words and how that can be professionally beneficial. Can you uh, explain that? Yeah, that was a surprise. That was a nice little study that I came across as I was doing the research from the book. That found out that found that people who spend more time um, in their email. So this was just a word scan of a ton of anonymized emails from uh, some companies just to see what uh, topics came up. And they, they had coded it for the, uh, uh, the kinds of topics that were connected to the business. Um, and so they were looking for business words and then they were looking for what they called social words. Um, and they found this was a European company and they found that uh, the folks who talked more about what Europeans call football and we call soccer, um, they did better. They had uh, they lasted longer at the company. They had more raises. They had higher positions, responsibilities, so on and so forth. Um, and it seems to be it's because those people were uh, trying hard, even while doing the business, to make social connections um, to uh, keep uh, their colleagues and, and fellow workers connected with each other. And so the insight there is that even in the virtual world, we need to do that work. This is water cooler conversations, as we'd say, or the conversation after the meeting that you have, or the chat in the hallway. Those kind of things are really important. They're the glue that holds business teams together. In the virtual world, you have to do those uh, uh, in in text-based messages and, and email and things like that, but uh, it's still got to be done or more so yeah. than ever. And that's why companies want people to come back uh, to the office is because of that, you know, bumping into people and having that conversation that you just can't do online. I don't see how you can be creative in a substantial way if you're not meeting with people and sitting around and shooting the S during yeah, the absolutely. day. Yeah. Yeah. On the sales side, you write about taking customers from passive to active. How do you do that virtually? Well, you know, the whole uh, sales cycle got exploded and all your salespeople listening will know this. Um, it got exploded by the, the internet and the online world in that before information was to use a glorious uh, 
IT term asynchronous. In other words, uh, the, the salespeople had the information um, and, and the customers didn't um, have as much information. Now that's reversed and, and I can get everything I need to know. It's to say, I'm going to go buy a car, right? I, in the past, the salesperson knew how much that cost, the real cost of the car was, knew how much he or she could discount the car to me uh, without, uh, without losing too much or without, still make money. Um, knew how available it was and whatnot. I didn't know any of that. Now I can find it all out by just going online and Googling, uh, you know, Lamborghini or whatever next car I'm going to buy. And, uh, uh, the, that that uh, imbalance of information um, means that customers are much further along typically in the sales cycle when they come to you. And so uh, you don't want to put them in a position of being passive or if they come to you um, still having some questions, right? You want to get them uh, to be active. So the first thing you want to do is find out exactly where are they in the sales cycle and is there any more information that they need in order for them to make the decision, hopefully the decision that you would want them to make. And, and so your job is really uh, uh, to provide them that information and to, to urge, urge them gently along this, the, the sales cycle to the decision point rather than um, trying to uh, talk them into something uh, because they don't have the information that they need. And so it's about listening much, much more than it is preaching or talking or selling to your, uh, to your uh, customer. What do you think about videos? In fact, I have a new venture funding organizer, and I created uh, a minute, 27-second uh, video that tells about my new venture. And I found, surprisingly, that all of a sudden I started getting calls from people like it easily explained what we do. And, and now I've had three meet, four meetings this past week uh, with prospective clients. So what, what's your take on being able to use videos? And, and a lot of them are relatively inexpensive that you can create yourself or have somebody create for you. It's not a big production like it used to be. That's right. It's, uh, you can do it with a cell phone and, and, uh, and one of those little uh, lights. And that's really all you need. Um, maybe a good microphone if you're really getting serious about it. Yeah, I mean the the the, uh, the the clear benefit of video is that um, it's warmer than text, so you can see people uh, connect with other people's faces. We learned to do this in the crib. We're looking up there at mommy and daddy and connecting with them. Uh, and so the, if you if you give people a screen full of images, they'll look first at the human face. Second, I guess it's puppies and kittens, but first it's the uh, it's the human face. And so a video gives you a chance to look at another human face and, and think about the typical day of the typical knowledge worker. You know, it's a vast amount of written stuff that they're plowing through. Again, doing triage, skimming, trying to find the things, the email that I don't have to read or the things that I don't have to do in order to get through it all. It becomes like this endless to-do list, right? So um, it's all written. So you give me some pictures, you give me some moving pictures, video, and that's just going to give me a little break in the day. It's going to be more fun. Um, and the, the other thing that's happening is the world is moving to video from print. That's just uh, the nature of, of uh, what's happening to us now. So uh, um, video is a good place to be right now. That said, the, the dangers of information overload are just as real ultimately in video as they are in print. Uh, so you, you do have to think about that. I would say keep your videos as short as possible, but no shorter. 
Yeah, that's why mine's a minute and 27 seconds. Because that's, good like that's all, yeah, all they can handle. Um, there's a passage about super salesman Ryan Estes. I hope I pronounced it correctly. About uh, about isn't who you know, but who knows you. I thought that was interesting. Can you please tell us a little bit about his success story and how he managed to use the virtual world in a positive, productive way? Yeah, so uh, I met Ryan when he was uh, just starting out in his speaking career, and and uh, we had a we had a wonderful time working uh, together. Uh, and the the thing that he saw very early on was that the purpose of social media was not to say, "Hey, I'm here. I'm a, I'm an interesting salesperson." But to uh, to talk about other people so that they would start talking about him, and he tells this wonderful story of a uh, uh, Starbucks. This is pre-pandemic, of course, a Starbucks barista who uh, he met a few times at the uh, in his hometown at the airport. She was uh, she was a worker at the airport Starbucks that he would stop to every time. And he started talking her up and saying how just wonderful it was to see her. She always had a big smile and she really personalized the experience. It just made it real and human. Um, and so he started talking her up on uh, social media and she became a social media star uh, uh, to a certain extent. And, and so then, of course, she's going to start talking that up too and and people are going to start taking pictures with her and that's all going to reflect back beautifully on ryan um and so he's done that over and over again re realizing that it's better to be selfless than selfish where um, online media is concerned one of the questions i had about virtual feedback uh, because i think you know uh, we're so managers are managing people all over and even vendors how do you give someone proper virtual feedback? Yeah, that, that's great. Um, you know, nobody likes feedback. We know this. But um, if you have to give it in person, at least you can soften the feedback with uh, with friendly body language and smiles and nods and commiseration and that kind of thing. All of that's much harder to do um, virtually. And so people really hate virtual feedback. Um, and so the thing you have to do is is give think in terms of the classic feedback sandwich where you have the bit of criticism surrounded by the the bread of, uh, of praise and, and warmth and friendliness, but more particularly in the virtual world, think about stressing that that uh, what's the important thing here is the ongoing nature of the relationship. And the feedback is just a, a little signpost along the way. It, it doesn't interfere with the, the longer term relationship. So you have to make that relationship strong. That's on you as the manager or the boss, um, and you have to stress that. And when you're giving feedback stress, um, you know, Mark, you've done this. You've done a great job for these past five years for us. We really love you. I know you're going to do a great job for the next five years. But, you know, that one time uh, you had spinach in your teeth. Uh, naughty, 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 you know. Uh, but, Bob, we love you. And, Mark, we love you. And you're going to keep uh, keep working for us. You know, it's it's about stressing the I'm giving a silly example, but it's about stressing the the long longer term nature of the relationship and the trust that we share. I think uh, you're, you're right about when you're telling somebody, uh, giving them criticism, you, uh, if in order for the drawbridge to come down for them to actually listen, you got to start off with the positives and then uh, gracefully go into that, but still peppering in positives. Uh, here's the last question. Any last pieces of advice to driving revenue, product ideas, and recruiting the right people for success? Wow, that's not a big question or anything, is it? <laughs> it only take a minute. <laughs> yeah, 
uh, I would say uh, what people want and what keeps them going through tough times like a pandemic uh, and the kind of lack of connection that we have is they need a sense of purpose. We need a sense that we're doing something worthwhile larger than ourselves. Uh, and so uh, the way you get those those good vibes going is by being clear about what your purpose is and then stressing that uh, uh, to prospective customers, employees, and the list that you mentioned. Nick, do you have your own podcast? Uh, I do. It's called Just One Question. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very short and sweet. It's typically three to five minutes. And I ask the person just one question, uh, although sometimes I do a follow-up. So it becomes just a couple of questions, but but uh, yeah, well, I started that during the, the uh, pandemic as a way of staying connected with people. And, and we've had a lot of fun with it. It's very casual, just uh, finding out what's what's the one thing on somebody's mind or the one cool thing they know or, or the cool thing that they're doing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Best of luck with your book. Uh, it was terrific. And everybody should get that book. I mean, it's very insightful. And of course, I love books with lots of research in them. That's why I invite people to come on this show that have really good things, interesting things to say. Everybody have a wonderful, safe weekend and hope to see you on Tuesday. We have a special show with the former president of the Philadelphia 76ers, who's a brilliant guy with a terrific book out. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.